0: distinctive among uh, many independent Baptists, if not most. It's um, one of the things that sets independent Baptists apart. A commendable uh, thing about independent Baptists is the zeal to evangelize, the zeal to preach the gospel. Uh, I was uh, talking to a friend, a pastor friend in Salt Lake City, and uh, he was curious about us. He's not independent Baptist. He said, do you all go door to door? I said, yeah. He said, wow. He said, I I wondered if there were any people that still did that. He said, "Um, I'm, I I thought there might be. He said, I'm not surprised that you all, uh, he said, I've just, do you see any results from that? I said, well, what do you do for evangelism? He said, well, we go to fairs and we have a book table and we hand out books and engage things. I said, do you see many results from that? He said, well, not much. I said, right. I said, our, our calling is to go and preach, not, not the results, right? The results are in God's hand. We are called to go and do it. And I said, it's wonderful, it's commendable that you set up book tables. And hand out free books at fairs. And engage people in conversation. That's great. But I said the only thing we see in the Bible. Is going door to door. Evangelizing that way. Now when we had the mayoral candidates in. um, I was talking to one of the candidates. And his um, campaign manager. And I was mentioning that, uh, Matt Godfrey, when he was elected mayor of Ogden, he knocked every single door in Ogden, every single door. People are still amazed by that. He knocked on every door in Ogden. He was a a young, energetic, on fire, wanted to do a job, and he did a great job for the city, really turned the city around. Um, from what it was prior to his administration, it's a totally different city now. Um, not all good things, but uh, still, um, it, it definitely turned the city around economically um, when he was mayor. But I was saying that, and um, the, the mayoral candidate's campaign manager said, "Ooh," she said, um, you know, door-to-door is not what it was 20 years ago. She said it almost is counterproductive today. People don't like people knocking on their door. We all know this, right? She wasn't saying anything that I had never noticed, right? It's not like I was going, oh really? They don't like it, huh? Maybe that's why they don't answer. (laughs) Maybe that's why they all put ring out. So you hit the ring and then they look at you Uh, to see who you are and then they don't say anything uh, at all. Um, uh, So we we see uh, where these things are, where these things are going, but still, and I want to speak to you tonight on the duty of soul winning, the duty of soul winning. Matthew 28, beginning verse 18, (coughs) Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me, in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore. Why? Because all power, all authority is given to Jesus to command us. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you all the way, even unto the end of the world. Amen. <clears throat> Let's pray and we'll dig in. Lord, thank you that we have the opportunity tonight to look at uh, an important duty, too often neglected. I pray that we wouldn't look at whole or a, or at evangelism as uh, a time slot in the week but that we would see it as a constant duty in our lives. And I pray that we would be active in our witness for you. Please help me as I lay out the duty for your people. I pray that we would see our duty clear and that our conscience being bound, and that we would obey you and go and make disciples of the nations. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible places a great emphasis on the duty of soul winning command is stated in each of the Gospels and in the book of Acts. So right there tells you that this is important. There, uh, of the, the events in the life of Christ there are more than a few that are only described or spoken of in one of the four Gospels. Some are only spoken of in the Synoptics but not in the Gospel of John. Some in the Gospel of John but not in the Synoptics. When Something is recorded for us in all four Gospels, that tells you it is important, it is significant, and not only is this described to us, laid out, set before us as a duty in all four Gospels, but also it is set as a duty in the book of Acts. So five times, five times, not to mention what Paul said Not to mention what some of the other epistles spoke of, and so on. So this is a big deal. Let me read to you the other places where this um, commission is given to the believer. Mark 16, verses 15 and 16. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. In Luke 24, not as familiar to us, but Luke 24, verse 46 to 49. And he said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. There it is, folks. That is the Great Commission. And ye are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. The, uh, the Apostle John, also in John chapter 20, verse 21. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you. Listen to this. As my Father has sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sends ye remit, they are remitted unto them, And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. So again, John also, we see this great commission. And then Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. So again, all the Gospels. And the book of Acts, which Acts chapter 1 is really picking up like it's a bridge, a transition from the Gospels to the early New Testament church and the establishment of that church. And so right away in, in connecting the events of Acts to the events of the Gospel, the first thing we see, we're reminded of, is this great commission to go and preach the gospel, to be witnesses unto Christ among every nation. So this is is what you need to understand. In fact, the book of Acts is the record of the apostles obeying that commission. And then the uh, epistles, Paul's epistles, Peter's, and so on, are the record of the apostles carrying on that work of discipleship, instructing these believers who have converted to Christ in the way that they should live. So there's a continuation in these in this record here. Now John, John's uh, giving of the Great Commission is unique because Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record. When Jesus uh, was about to ascend to heaven. But John uh, records what Jesus said in the upper room after he had risen from the grave, the very night, in fact, um, I believe, or within a night or two of Christ's resurrection, when the disciples, and Thomas in particular, Jesus had shown himself to the other disciples, Thomas demanded some proof. He said, unless I put my finger in the holes in his hands and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe, he said. And so Jesus came and showed himself, demonstrated to Thomas that he was, in fact, the risen Christ. And then Jesus gave this same commission. So what that means is that Jesus had this duty in mind as a risen Savior, and He had this duty in mind when He ascended to heaven. In fact, just to place an even greater and stress to you the emphasis here, the synoptics present the Great Commission as Christ's last word to His disciples. The last thing He said before He ascended to heaven. Last words, you know, are important. That's the thing that you remember. That's the thing that is quoted. The last thing that someone said. So these are Christ's last words to his disciples is to go and preach the gospel. Of course, the command is important because it came from Jesus. And because it found its way into the word of God. So that this commission is recorded for all the saints in all the ages. This is what God wants us to be doing. The other points emphasize just how important this is. The fact that all four gospels plus acts records this commission. Commission from the Lord Jesus Christ. And the fact that twice in Christ's ministry before he ascended to heaven, he gave this command. And the fact that these are the last words to his <coughs> disciple all those things, all those things emphasize, show us how important this is. But the fact that Jesus commanded it should be enough for us. We shouldn't need all the other to say we ought to be doing this. The others tell us that this is very 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 important for us as believers to be doing this. <clears throat> Jesus commanded us to preach the gospel to every creature that's what we need to know. And I want to lay out the duty to you as both a reminder and an encouragement to stay faithful in this duty. Soul winning is a Christian duty. Every follower of Jesus Christ must also be a witness for Christ. And let me say this. Jesus said, in Romans chapter 10 we're told, that if you will not confess Christ before men, that you will not be confessed before the Father. If you are ashamed of Christ, then Christ will be ashamed of you. As well, We are witnesses of Christ, though. And I want to be clear about this. We are commanded to witness, but we are witnesses. Jesus said, and ye shall be witnesses unto me. You shall be. So he was talking about something that would be a reality. Uh, a future reality for all those who bear the name of Christian. You are witnesses. The witness that you give of Christ is either true or it is false. Either you're, either you're speaking and and showing forth the praises of him, or you are speaking lies about him. But we are witnesses of Jesus Christ. Now, here's an interesting fact. The word witness, the word that uh, Acts 1.8 uses... That's rendered a witness in the Bible. Translate the Greek word martyros. Martyrus. Uh, you, might, you might recognize vaguely uh, marturis, uh, You might recognize it as the transliterated word martyr. Alright, martyr, the word martyr is a direct transliteration from Greek to English. Alright, so now there's, there's a danger in Greek studies, there's a danger of taking something like that and making it mean the same thing. So the fact that the Greek word martyris, martyr, uh, is rendered witness does not mean that you are a martyr if you go out and witness uh, for the Lord, like you are uh, being put on the chopping block. But you might feel like that sometimes when you go out to witness. You might feel like, oh my, you know, I'm about to be, I'm giving my body to be burned and scorned and hated and despised. You might feel persecuted when people slam doors in your face or sometimes don't slam the door and you wish they would because they stand and spew all kinds of garbage and hateful things at you and say things To you, and so on. But there is, though, a correlation to be made, and I want to make a point to you about that Greek word, martyrus. I want to point out a couple things there. First of all, the fact that martyr is the translated, transliterated version of martyrus does not mean that you're required to die for your witness. It uh, doesn't mean that you have to die in order to be a witness for Christ. The Greek word is used both for those who witness and for those who die. And it's interesting to me that the Bible actually the word martyr in the Bible is also this, it's a rendering of this word martyrus. Um, so, so the Bible itself is making that connection our english bible is making that connection the word martyr came to be associated with those who die as witnesses of jesus christ the word literally means a witness for jesus who dies because of that witness Lonita defines it as a person who has been deprived of life as the result of bearing witness to his beliefs. That is a martyr. And in the Bible, the biblical martyr is one who died because of his faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, we don't want to overdo it with this word. We don't want to overly spiritualize, but I would point out the connection between witnessing and death because um, witnessing is a kind of dying. Let me explain. First of all, you have a deeply held conviction, one that you would rather die than give up. Now, I remember when I was a teenager, my, my dad would give me books and stories to read about martyrs. And I would read about those, and I, like, like you, would think to myself, would I do that? Would I do that in that moment? Would I be faithful to death? And I would wonder. I would question. I would doubt. I would think of those times when I was ashamed of Christ, embarrassed that I was a Christian Christian didn't want people to know it. And I would think, how could I think that I would then die for Jesus? I want to say this, that humanly speaking, none of us would give our life for our witness. We would all shrink and we would all count But in that moment, God's grace is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. It's hard when people are angry at you for something that you believe. When they rage at you. I think of Trump and how careful sometimes we are like, we don't want to say it. yeah. I, I like him. I find that even sometimes around, around some pastors, I have to be careful about it, because they'll rage too. We don't like people to be upset with us, but even more so with Christ. But if you're born again, and if you've given your life to Christ in that moment, You read of the martyrs and if you've read of them, and I hope that you have. If not, you should. You should take some time and learn about the martyrs. But many of them, on the night before they died, they they were afraid. Terribly afraid. But they were not afraid of the death and the suffering they were about to face. They were afraid that they would betray the Lord. That the pain... The fear, the the shame, the reproach would be so severe that they would give up in their witness. Many of them prayed all night, the night before they died, that the Lord would keep them, sustain them, so that they would not be unfaithful in the hour of trial. I believe that this is a big part of the role that the whole armor of God plays in the Christian's life to protect us in the evil day that we would be able to stand in the evil day. This deeply held conviction about the glory of Jesus Christ is more than just fandom. This is A life commitment. And the life commitment is that Jesus died for you. Because if he didn't die for you. Die in your place. Then you would suffer eternally for your sins. God has called you to lay your sins on Jesus. And in exchange. God counts the righteousness of Jesus. To your account. Credits it to your account, counts you righteous, for Christ's sake. We have more motivation than to proclaim the good news of the gospel than any other message. That's interesting. You know, I find that uh, the other day my son's football coach was wearing a really faded Washington Redskins shirt. And I was like, what the Redskins I'm not embarrassed at all to bring that up. But bringing up the gospel is awkward and difficult. Telling people good news. If I hear that somebody's got some sickness and I know something about that sickness, I might relate with them, relate to them, some, you know, something that we did or what helped us or something like that. But when it comes to our sin problem, which is far greater than any health problem, Far greater than any sports issue. When it comes to what Christ has done for me, I'm hesitant. I'm leery of sharing it. A thousand excuses bombard me why I should not. Anyone who is witness for Christ knows that witnessing is a sort of death. It requires a kind of death to self. For us to share with others what Christ has done for us. We have to be willing to let friendships die. In order to witness to a friend. We have to be willing to let our relationships be discarded, be ruined by our witness for Jesus Christ. We have to be willing to allow our reputations themselves to die in order to witness for Christ. Anyone who has witnessed for Christ has been subject to the scorn and the ridicule, the passive-aggressive assaults, and suggestions, the whispering campaigns among our co-workers and neighbors. You witnessed to your co-worker, you know, I when I was working in the secular world and uh, my co-worker, I needed a ride, he took me home. And on the way home, I witnessed him, of course. Right? And we had a really amazing conversation. I thought, wow, he listened to me. The next day I came into work, and there was this odd tension kind of snickering behind my back, and no one could look me in the eye or talk to me. And I realized after a while, somebody made a little snide remark, and I realized that the whole conversation had been replayed among all my coworkers. That's what I'm saying here. There is a correlation to be made between martyrdom and witnessing. That you have to be fine with being ridiculed, being the butt of the joke, being mocked. It's funny to me, no one ever did that about the kind of car I drove. No one ever did it about the sports teams I followed. Nobody ever did it for any reason except for that. You have to be willing to have that happen. Our witness for Christ demonstrates our willingness to die for him. Even if we're never called to die for Christ's sake. But also there's the pain of witnessing. We all dread that moment. Even when we're door to door, right? It's easier just to talk about the flowers and the shrubbery and the paint job on the house and the weather and sports and so on. But moving the conversation from the getting to know you phase to the I came here to share the good news of the gospel with you is a challenge for us. With our friends and neighbors, to bring it up is a challenge. We all dread that moment when we know that we need to bring it up. We need to discuss it. We need to talk about it. We've all experienced that sick feeling in our stomach, like the, the from the moment we begin to think that I need to witness to this man this person, this friend. From that moment on, all the joy and enjoyment in the conversation begins to go away and fade, And a dread and a tension comes over us. You know, this person was just starting to like me. We were, I think, if I did not witness to him He would probably be a good friend. And we know, we know probably nine times out of ten, when I witness to him, that will end in rejection of me personally. In many cases, we would rather share any other good experience than the wonderful news of the gospel, we're saying about tonight. Um, he, uh, um, he brought me up also out of the horrible pit, out of the miry clay, right, and set my feet upon the rock and established my goings. It's easy to praise the Lord for that in church, but to tell other people about it, it's difficult. There can be no doubt that our reluctance to witness and the difficulty, the challenge we find of moving the conversation from from things of this world to spiritual things, from the temporal to the eternal, is clear evidence of the spiritual warfare we are engaged in. If you would be a witness for Jesus Christ, you're called to come and die. But we are witnesses. We are witnesses, and that is what the word "martura" means. We shall be witnesses. What is a witness? What is it we bear witness to? When I am out evangelizing, I am bearing witness. But what am I bearing witness to? If I were a witness in a murder trial, I would bear witness to the guilt or innocence of the innocence of the accused. If I were a character witness, I would vouch for the good character of someone I know. As Christians, we bear witness to the glory of God in Jesus Christ. The missionary psalm, Psalm 96, teaches us to declare his glory among the heathen. Now we think the heathen must live in jungles somewhere in South America or Africa, but no. The heathen are those who have rejected Christ, those who have not believed. They are the heathen, And we are to declare his glory among them. This is the first duty of the Christian witness. To show others the glory of our Lord and Savior. Now, Of course, his glory is seen most clearly in his plan for redemption. Yes, absolutely. The work of creation is an amazing, amazing work. But the work of redemption is surpasses that, yes. eclipses that one Because the glory of the creation is still there, but it's overshadowed by the fall, overshadowed by sin that has brought ruin and destruction in our world. So that, as I pointed out to you Sunday night, the whole creation cries and groans for redemption, and so God's work of redemption is a truly glorious thing. His glory most clearly, most vividly seen. And we are called to make it known. Make it known. We must proclaim his gospel then as ambassadors. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 through 20. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the Ministry of Reconciliation is... When I was a kid, we'd play this game, and it'd be like a kind of tag. There were a number of a varieties of tag. You probably all played some of these. You play freeze tag, you know, where you tag the person, and then they have to stay perfectly still and not move until someone comes in and unfreezes them, right? Um, and you're trying to freeze everybody. It's like Narnia, right? Uh, Narnia winner. Uh, there and uh, you're the white witch and um, right, freezing everybody get a buddy and, um, and everyone else is playing the house line but anyway uh, I digress but then there was also that we it uh, we went by different names um, but uh, something like devils and angels where you would be tagging people and then they would be recruited to your side alright and this is this is the way it is Everyone is on the bad side, right? On the devil's side. And then you, who have been reconciled, go and preach reconciliation to others. I found peace. My sins were removed, and I was able to have a relationship with God. That's the gospel that we preach. That is the ministry that we have as ambassadors for Christ. All things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation, which is the now that we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us, be reconciled, we pray you in Christ's to be reconciled to God. That's what, that's what we're pleading with men, to be reconciled to God. So God has given this ministry to us, which means God has called us serve him by bringing others into fellowship with him. Paul describes this ministry of reconciliation. It begins with God who was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. So then God's work in the reconciliation of sinners, God's work is primary. He reconciles the sinner to himself. He initiated it. He was in Christ. That's the thing. We have to remember, God did not just send Jesus and make him die for our sin, but God was in Christ when Christ was dying. He was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Our duty is to announce that the work of reconciliation is completed, that the barrier between us and God, the sin, the offense that had risen up, that separated us from God, that offense has been removed, not just eradicated, not just eliminated, but placed on Jesus and punished there so that the offense has been dealt with and we then can be reconciled to God, but only through Christ, only through Christ. That is our gospel preaching. That is what we proclaim to the world. That man can be restored to fellowship with God because of the work God has done to that end. That's our ministry. God has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Then the apostle describes us as ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, We pray you in Christ's stead be reconciled to God. What is an ambassador? He represents the king. He goes on behalf of the king with the king's message to the king's enemies and tells them that the king desires peace with you. These are his terms. That's our job right there. God desires that you would be reconciled to him. The offense is yours. He is the offended king. When the ambassador is sent. As I understand it from the history books. The ambassador is sent. As a final effort. Before war is declared. God has sent me. To preach to you. To tell you. That he desires peace with you. That he has purchased that peace for your sake, on your behalf. He has done that. These are his terms. That's what we preach. That's what we proclaim. You know, it's one of those things. If the enemy determines that he will not be reconciled. Most likely, he will aim insults at the ambassador. But when he insults the ambassador, the ambassador is not to take that personally. The ambassador is to understand that those insults, that hostility, is aimed at him because he represents the king. And that the king will deal with it. That's why we're called again to come and die, come and die. So our job then as ambassadors is not to persuade men to believe the gospel or to receive Jesus Christ. Now, we don't, I may pity them, but pity is not necessary for me to deliver the message. It is not required. It is required that I I deliver the message faithfully. Our message is simple. Paul described it in Acts 20 and verse 21. I'm sorry, Acts 20, verse 20 and 21. And how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God, And faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance toward God. And faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. That's our message. That's what we preach. Those are the terms. Christ purchased the peace. He is our peace. We go and announce the terms. Faith and repentance. That's it. Now, we can have compassion towards the lost as well. Jude speaks of that in Jude 1 verse 22, and of some have compassion making difference, others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. But our primary duty as a witness is not compassion. I don't need to turn on the waterworks to be a good ambassador. I don't need a trembling lip to be a good ambassador. I don't need a tear in my eye to be a good ambassador. The most important reason why we ought to witness is not the pity we feel for sinners. It is not. We are witnesses because God has made us Witnesses of His great glory and saving grace. We have experienced it ourselves. We, ourselves, have been reconciled to God. We see His great glory, His great majesty. And we desire that He would be glorified in saving sinners. And so we preach. We preach for Him. He is our motivation. Not lost sinners. We tell the world because he sent us to tell the world. Compassion should enter the picture because we're human beings and we've experienced the forgiveness of God ourselves. We ought to feel compassion towards sinners who are going to stand before the judgment seat of God in time. As one human being should have feelings of humanity towards another human being. Just as if I saw their house was on fire, and I knew that they were trapped inside, or didn't know that their house was on fire, it would be unconscionable not to go and tell them that. Even so, it is unconscionable not to tell a fellow human being the danger that he stands in. If he continues in his rejection of God. But sometimes though, and this is where it can be difficult, sometimes we are called to preach the gospel to people we feel no pity towards, no compassion towards, and perhaps even feel like if they die and go to hell, they'll deserve it we're called to go and preach the gospel to them as well. Because the same God, the same God who saved and redeemed John, the beloved apostle, also saved and redeemed the murderer, Paul. And you think about this. When Paul was first converted, there is, in my mind, no doubt, absolutely no doubt, that when he showed up at church, he confronted face to face people who he had hauled away to death. Do you think they felt compassion for Paul? But God is glorified in the saving sinners. And we want God to be glorified. Soul winning is an individual duty. It is also a church duty. The Great Commission was not given merely to individual believers. Christ gave the Great Commission to his church. Jesus Christ in his ministry promised to build his church. Matthew 16, 18, And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock, listen to this next word, smallest word in the English language, I, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus said that he would build his church. The Bible nowhere teaches that the day of Pentecost was the founding of the church after Jesus had ascended to heaven. The day of Pentecost was the empowering of the church. The church was commanded to tarry in Jerusalem until they were endued with power from on high. And when the Bible speaks of the The giving of the Holy Ghost, it does not speak of it in terms of individuals being filled and empowered. The Holy Spirit, you'll remember, filled the whole place where they were at. The flaming tongues of fire appeared over each head. But the Spirit filled the place where they were at. God was empowering his church for this witness. All right, so the gathered disciples were the first church. When Christ gave the Great Commission, he gave it to that first church. So then the church has a duty to actively engage the community with the gospel. I'm going to stop there. We need to, um, I've been going over time week after week your fault. You get me all hyped up and then I start ranting and marching back and forth and going on and on and on and on. So we'll take two weeks on this important subject. We've taken two weeks on other subjects. Let's take two on this one.